until the end of the game and just had a wonderful time this morning at church and then you just get that defiled feeling, you know, when the Yankees beat the Braves and it just made me look forward to coming back tonight and just washing myself afresh in the Word of God. So let's turn in our Bibles to Second Chronicles. Second Chronicles. If you're in the midst of a remodeling project, you probably wouldn't think that you would need a priest. An architect, maybe, a contractor, a framer, maybe a mill worker, or an electrician, or a plumber, or even an engineer, but a pastor? Nah. And yet that's exactly what Judah needed. The Jews had returned from 70 years in Babylonian exile. They had returned to their land to rebuild their nation, and the work was tough. They desperately needed some pastoral encouragement, and that's why God sent them Ezra the priest. Ezra was a pastor with a pen, and he wrote an encouraging chronicle of their history. The book, Samuel and Kings, are straightforward history, whereas Chronicles is a commentary on that history. It's written from a certain slant. Rather than labor over the nation's numerous mistakes and sins, Ezra focuses on what they do right. He wants to make sure that even when he records their sin, he makes it clear that it could have been easily avoided. One commentary explains it as follows. Kings is the history of Israel from man's viewpoint, whereas Chronicles is the history of Israel from God's viewpoint. And if so... That explanation reveals a glorious truth. God is always looking on the bright side. Because Chronicles highlights the high points and de-emphasizes the negatives. Man's version of history is a hopeless death march, but history from God's perspective is His story. God's plan always culminates in a glorious future. It's revealing to me that a quarter of Second Chronicles deals with the reign of Solomon. Now, the entire book covers 400 years of history, from 971 B.C. to 586 B.C., but understand 25% of the book is preoccupied with just 10% of the time. And the reason is that Solomon's kingdom was the pinnacle of Judah's prominence. It was the golden age, you might say. And Ezra's purpose in this book is to inspire these exiles who have returned from Babylon with a reminder of the glory that they once enjoyed in hopes that they will aspire again to that same glory. Look at how he opens the book in verse 1. Now Solomon, the son of David, was strengthened in his kingdom. And the Lord his God was with him and exalted him exceedingly. Notice Solomon's success was not the result of natural advantages or physical circumstances. The key, in fact, was far simpler. The reason Solomon was exalted was that God was with him. And God had chosen to exalt him exceedingly. And Ezra believes, if God has done it before, then God can do it again. You know, the real success comes not from natural endowment not from human talent. The key to real success is God's presence. 
God's promotion. Second Chronicles teaches us what Abraham Lincoln once said, Without God's assistance, I cannot succeed. With His assistance, I cannot fail. Historian Josephus says that Solomon was 14 years old when he became king. And he had some big shoes to fill. His dad was David. Would he be able to live up to the expectations? Solomon turns to God. He goes to the tabernacle, which at the time was located in Gibeon, and there he offers a thousand burnt offerings, which reminds me of the wife who treated her husband like a god. She offered him burnt offerings every night for dinner. Verse 7 tells us how God responds to Solomon's prayers. On that night, God appeared to Solomon and said to him, Ask, what shall I give you? It was a blank check. Solomon can have anything he wants. What if God said to you, make a wish and it'll be granted? Here's another way to look at it. What one thing would solve all your problems? Think about it. Well, if I won the lotto. I hope you don't really believe that. (laughs) The lotto might solve a few of your problems, but it would create even more than it had solved. Well, if I had my own business. Or maybe if I just got married. Yes, that would solve all of my problems. Sure. (laughs) I've been married for 20 years and I have no more problems. That's right. Or maybe if I were just better looking, that would solve all my problems. Now, trust me, I'm pretty good looking. But that doesn't solve your problems. God gives Solomon his visa card. It has an unlimited limit. And he allows him one purchase. Verse 10 tells us what he buys. Now give me wisdom and knowledge that I may go out and come in before this people. For who can judge this great people of yours? Here is the solution to all your problems. Wisdom. Whether you're king of a nation or whether you're just king of your castle, you need wisdom. To apply God's word. To walk in his ways. To know his will. You need wisdom. Rather than more stuff, you and I need the wisdom to enjoy what we have. To make right choices. To succeed in relationships. Solomon filled in the blank check wisely. And God gives him wisdom plus everything else he could have asked for. Riches, honor, victory over his enemies, even long life. You see, until our priority is in, until our priority in life is set, is fixed in stone, the blessings of God can actually get in our way. You see, when a heart grows fixated on material stuff, the stuff becomes a distraction to his spiritual growth. And to his commitment to God. The blessings can become more important than the blesser. And this is why Jesus told us in Matthew 6 verse 33. It's illustrated here by Solomon. Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. And then all these other things shall be added to you. Pursue God and he'll see to it that you have everything else you need. This is the principle that Solomon models. You'll notice that the first thing he does is he seeks God's kingdom. 
His first objective is to build God a temple. Chapter 3, verse 1 tells us, Solomon began to build the house of the Lord at Jerusalem on Mount Moriah, where the Lord had appeared to his father David at the place that David had prepared on the threshing floor of Ornon the Jebusite. Mount Moriah was also where Abraham had sacrificed Isaac. There's a legend that adds another reason why this site was chosen for the temple. Supposedly, two brothers had fallen on hard times, and both men cared for each other's families. One night, one of the men packed a basket of food, and he went to leave the basket anonymously on his brother's porch. The other brother, though, had the same idea on the very same night. And when the men met each other in the moonlight, they dropped their baskets and they hugged each other. And the legend goes, the temple was built where the two men embraced. Whether the legend is true or not, we don't know. But it is true that God intended for the temple to be a place of unification. A place where the nation would be one. Rather than worship individually... God centralized worship. He commanded all Israel to worship at the temple in Jerusalem. This ensured two things, purity of devotion and unity among the people. Purity and unity. The temple was the one place where man could embrace God and in turn, brother could embrace brother. We should never forget that in Christ, we too are the temple of God. In the New Testament, God has likewise centralized worship. In Christ alone, man is allowed to embrace God, and man finds reason to embrace his fellow man. Just as Solomon built a grand and glorious temple, Jesus is building a spiritual temple just as grand, just as glorious. The temple was and is God's dwelling place on the earth, and he wants to shine his light through us, our personal character. The quality of our relationships as we interact with each other all should reflect God's love and His truth, His mercy and His compassion. And we, in turn, become a glorious temple and a witness to this world. Chapters 3 through 5 describe the construction and the furnishings of the temple. You've got a little drawing of the temple there in your study guide that you might refer to. At the temple's dedication, Solomon brought in the Ark of the Covenant. And in chapter 5, verse 10, we're given an interesting detail. It says, Nothing was in the ark except the two tablets which Moses put there at Horeb. You remember initially, the ark contained three items. The two tablets of the Ten Commandments, the jar of manna, and the rod of Aaron that budded. Now it only has the Ten Commandments. What happened to the manna and the rod? Well, no one really knows. We just know that at this point, all that was in it were the tablets. In chapter 6, Solomon prays a prayer of dedication. And in chapter 7, verse 1, he describes the miracle that happened next. When Solomon had finished praying, fire came down from heaven and consumed the burnt offering and the sacrifices, and the glory of the Lord filled the temple. It's interesting, three times in Scripture, a temple or a dwelling place for God is dedicated. And each time, 
The Lord fills the temple with His glory and He sends fire down from heaven to consume the sacrifice. You remember the first time it happened? When Moses dedicated the tabernacle in the wilderness. It happens here when Solomon dedicates the temple. But it also happens in Acts chapter 2 when Jesus dedicates the New Testament temple, the church. You remember when the Holy Spirit filled the 120 disciples in the upper room there at Pentecost. Tongues of fire appeared over the heads of the disciples. Again, fire had fallen from heaven to consume the sacrifice. The difference in the New Testament is that the sacrifices are not slaughtered. The sacrifices serve. You and I are living sacrifices, Paul says in Romans. In chapter 9... Ezra chooses an incident from Solomon's life to highlight the depth of his wisdom and the vastness of his wealth. The queen of Sheba pays the king a visit. She comes 1,200 miles to match wits with Solomon and to witness the glory of his kingdom. And we're told in verse 4, the glory of Solomon literally took her breath away. Solomon's greatness made a woman speechless. She had heard of his greatness, but when she saw it, she realized it was far more than she expected. And in verse 8, the queen of Sheba gives God the credit for Solomon's glory and greatness. And here is Old Testament evangelism at work. God wanted to bless Israel to such a degree that the world would have to conclude that the God of Israel was the one true God. And here we see that plan of evangelism working out with the Queen of Sheba. The remainder of chapter 9 discusses Solomon's treasure, his throne, and his trading. But notice Ezra never mentions the trap that ruined Solomon. You remember from Kings, we're told that Solomon multiplied wives. And those foreign wives lured him into idolatry. Ezra, though, doesn't mention it here. And why? Remember his purpose. He is encouraging the Jews. He's not trying to remind them of their mistakes. Hey, they have served 70 years in Babylon, in exile, because of their idolatry. They don't don't need to be reminded of it here. Ezra's purpose is in reviving hope, not heaping on guilt. You know, we as pastors need to learn a lesson from Ezra's example. I know pastors who think it's their duty to constantly remind people of their sin. But I have found that if you're repentant, you don't need a reminder of the past. You need encouragement. You need hope for the future. And Ezra deliberately excludes Solomon's idolatry from his chronicles and by doing so makes an important point to forgiven idolaters. What God forgives, God forgets. He wants us all to start over. Yes, sin has its consequences, but our past doesn't have to cripple our future. Always remember, God looks on the bright side. Chapter 10 introduces us to Solomon's son, Rehoboam, who must have been a Democrat because he wants to raise taxes. Just kidding. Rehoboam's problem is that he listens to the wrong people. 
The older advisors who had witnessed Solomon's wisdom, they counsel him in verse 7. If you are kind to these people and please them and speak good words to them, they will be your servants forever. In other words, people like to be loved, not shoved. But Rehoboam is victimized by some peer counseling. The younger advisors, they come to him. They tell him that he needs to come down hard, up the taxes, tighten the screws. And the cruel tactic becomes an awful mistake. It splits the kingdom. The northern ten tribes come together under a man named Jeroboam and form a rival nation called Israel, while the southern tribe of Judah remains loyal to King Rehoboam. Now, to solidify his hold on the north, Jeroboam establishes his own religion. He sets up golden calves in Dan and in Bethel. Verse 15 calls them calf idols. He also appoints his own priests. And as a result of his apostasy, the northerners who stay faithful to God, they migrate south. And it must have been a sizable number. Because verse 17 tells us that their presence strengthened the kingdom of Judah. Understand, for the next 350 years of Judah's history the message will basically be the same. As one author put it, whether Abiyah of Judah is fighting Israel, or Asa is battling the Ethiopians, or Jehoshaphat is struggling with the Moabites, or Hezekiah is wrestling with the Assyrians, the point is always the same. Only God can bring victory. The success of Judah is invariably related to her trust in God. And as we read through here now, story after story, remember this theme. Trust God and prevail, or trust in your own strength, and no matter how strong you are, you will fail. In chapter 12, Rehoboam finds this out the hard way. When he fails to obey the Lord, Shishak, the Pharaoh of Egypt, attacks and plunders Solomon's golden shields. Even when Judah repents, the Lord speaks to Jeroboam, and we're told in verses 7 and 8 of chapter 12, when the Lord saw that they had humbled themselves, the word of the Lord came to Shimeiah, saying, They have humbled themselves. Therefore, I will not destroy them, but I will grant them some deliverance. My wrath shall not be poured out on Jerusalem by the hand of Shishak. Nevertheless, they will be his servants, that they may distinguish my service from the service of the kingdoms of the nations. It's interesting. God spared Jerusalem from destruction, but he did allow Shishak to oppress Judah. You see, he wanted to prove to his people that it's a lot easier to serve the Lord than it is to serve Shishak. The Lord loves us. Shishak and sin, and the world, and our flesh, and our lusts, they become cruel taskmasters. And you see, sometimes we forget, everybody serves somebody. You either serve the Lord, or you serve the devil, or you serve yourself, or you serve this world, or you serve popular opinion. But everybody serves somebody. And you're always better off serving the Lord. He loves you. He treats his servants with kindness and compassion. He rewards them abundantly. Ezra recalls God's motive here. 
because it was the exact motive that sent the Jews to Babylon for 70 years. It's also the motive behind the tough times in our lives. We too are prone to forget the joy of serving the Lord until we are forced to serve someone else. Chapter 13 records the victory of Rehoboam's son, King Abijah, over Israel. And in verse 12, Abijah warns the king of Israel, Jeroboam, to back off. He tells him, Now look, God himself is with us as our head, and his priests with sounding trumpets to sound the alarm against you. O children of Israel, do not fight against the Lord God of your fathers, for you shall not prosper. And I love his reasoning here. When God is your head, you can expect to get ahead. Let me ask you, who's your head? Who mans the bridge in your life? Who calls the shots? We're told in verse 18, Judah prevailed because they relied on the Lord. Abijah's son, Asa, was another godly king. And Asa's obedience ushers in a time of peace. But the peace is interrupted with an Ethiopian attack. All 1,300,000 Soldiers of the Ethiopians come against Asa. Asa is outnumbered now, two to one. But the king cries out to God in verse 11. He says, Lord, it is nothing for you to help, whether with many or with those who have no power. Help us, O Lord our God, for we rest on you. And in your name we go against this multitude. O Lord, you are our God. Do not let man prevail against us. I love that. It is nothing for you to help, (laughs) whether with many or with those who have no power. In other words, one plus God always equals a majority. Never forget that. We might be outnumbered. We might feel like we're overpowered. That is until we factor God into the equation. God is the great equalizer. In fact, when God is on your side, you've got the edge. God's involvement, His presence makes victory certain. Look at verse 12. It says, The Lord struck the Ethiopians before Asa, and the Ethiopians fled. In chapter 15, verse 2, a prophet comes to warn Asa, The Lord is with you while you are with Him. If you seek Him, He will be found by you. But if you forsake Him, He will forsake you. Asa took this to heart. And he sought the Lord. And he instituted many important reforms in Judah. Verse 16 tells us that Asa even dethroned his own mother, Makkah, when she turned to worship idols. I think that takes some guts. Asa loved the Lord more than his own mother. It reminds me of Jesus' words. In Luke chapter 14, verse 26. If anyone comes to me and does not hate his father and mother, wife and children, brothers and sisters, yes, and his own life also, he cannot be my disciple. What does he mean by that? He tells us in other places to love our mother and father. Here he tells us to hate them. What Jesus is saying is that our love for him should be so intense that it makes our love for these natural relationships look like hate. He's using some hyperbole 
He's trying to emphasize the degree of love we should have for him. Asa demonstrates that. He booted his own mother off the throne when she worshipped idols. Asa's life teaches us another lesson. Faith has to stay current. Asa trusted God for victory over the Ethiopians, but when Israel attacks, he turns to Syria for help. In chapter 16, verse 9, a prophet rebukes Asa. He says, For the eyes of the Lord run to and fro throughout the whole earth to show himself strong on behalf of those whose heart is loyal to him. What an important verse. Notice God is an opportunist. God is always on the lookout. His eyes run to and fro. God is always looking for the underdog scenario where he can turn the tables and showcase his power. But God won't work on behalf of a person who's going to take the credit for himself or try to manipulate the outcome for his own benefit. No, God looks for the person whose heart is loyal to him. The eyes of the Lord run to and fro throughout the whole earth to show himself strong on behalf of those whose heart is loyal to him. This is what Jesus told us in the Sermon on the Mount. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. They will see his work in their lives. Asa's successor, Jehoshaphat, was also a godly king. And in chapter 17, verse 6, we're told that his heart took delight in the ways of the Lord. Jehoshaphat tore down the pagan altars or the high places. But it's interesting what he did to strengthen his own kingdom. Verses 7 through 10 tells us that he sent men throughout Judah to teach the people the word of God. Asa had mandated worship. In his zeal, he had told the people to obey God or else. And that's why Asa's reforms never lasted. The people were not informed. Jehoshaphat, though, knew that the people needed to be taught God's word. If they had been taught God's word, then they would learn to love God, and therefore he sent the people out to teach. Nobody is perfect, and Jehoshaphat's sin was getting himself entangled with his evil neighbor Ahab. God sanctions a battle to arrange Ahab's death. But because Jehoshaphat joins Ahab, he puts himself in the line of fire. He puts himself in jeopardy. This is the reason the Bible tells us that a believer should never be unequally yoked with an unbeliever. Whether that yoke is marriage, whether that yoke is a business partnership, maybe that yoke is some other form of affiliation, some binding agreement. Nevertheless, when you yoke together with an unbeliever, your fate becomes inseparably joined with their fate. Which means if God chooses to judge them, you'll end up suffering too. And that's what Jehoshaphat learned the hard way. A prophet comes to Jehoshaphat to make sure he understands his error. And he tells him in chapter 19 verse 2, should you help the wicked and love those who hate the Lord? Therefore, the wrath of the Lord is upon you. Your intentions may be noble, 
You're trying to help. But get in the path of God's wrath (laughs) and you'll get hurt. Remember that. Chapter 20 could be entitled, How to Handle a Crisis. A coalition of southern kings launched a surprise attack against Jehoshaphat. And immediately the king of Judah calls a prayer meeting. A day of fasting. A day of seeking the Lord. And Jehoshaphat's prayer in verses 5 through 12 is certainly a prayer to model. First, the king fixes his eyes on God's sovereignty, God's power. He reiterates the nation's claim upon God. They are his chosen people. He recalls God's promise to answer their cries. And then he notes the injustices done by the people warring against Israel. King Jehoshaphat sums up his prayer in verse 12. He says, O our God, will you not judge them? For we have no power against this great multitude that is coming against us, nor do we know what to do, but our eyes are upon you. How many times have you felt like that? The Spirit of God comes upon a man named Jehaziel, and he causes him to prophesy. And in verse 15, Jehaziel says, Thus says the Lord to you, Do not be afraid nor dismayed because of this great multitude, for the battle is not yours, but God's. We overestimate the part that God wants us to play in His plan. We forget that His shoulders are big enough to carry the bulk of the load. The battle is never really ours. It's always God's battle. And all too often, our efforts to help only get in God's way. And that's why verse 17 explains our part in the battle. Jehaziel tells us to stand still and see the salvation of the Lord. And so often, that's God's word to us. Just stand still and watch how I work this out. The next day, when Jehoshaphat configures his troops, he places the singers and worship leaders ahead of the infantry. And rather than raise a ruckus, they praise the Lord. And apparently praise packs a punch because the enemies of God, they shudder when they hear God being praised. Worship drives the demons crazy. It thwarts their plans. And Jehoshaphat's tactic confuses the enemy. They end up all killing each other. They all die of friendly fire. And through incredible means, God wins a victory for Judah. Sometimes, though, the consequences of sin become apparent or don't become apparent until much later on down the line. And such was the case with Jehoshaphat's association with the evil king Ahab. Apparently, the evil Ahab had more influence on Jehoshaphat's son and successor, Jehoram, than did his own father. Jehoram's Jehoram, when he grew older, married Ahab's daughter. And he walked in Ahab's wicked ways. And it's interesting, chapter 21, verses 12 through 15, is a letter that was sent by the prophet Elijah to Jehoram. Elijah prophesied in the north, but here he sends a letter to the king of the southern kingdom. In the letter, he predicts that the king will die a hard death that his intestines will become inflamed, that they will protrude from his body. 
And that indeed is what happens. Jehoram dies in agony and in infamy. We're told in verse 20, he reigned in Jerusalem eight years and to no one's sorrow departed. (laughs) How would you like for them to say that about you when you die? We were just glad to see the old boy go. He was such a crumb, no one cared to have him around. Jehoram's son, Ahaziah, reigned just one year. And like Jehoshaphat, he allied himself with the king of Israel. But unlike Jehoshaphat, he didn't escape. He put himself in harm's way by associating with the evil king. And in the end, he was wounded in battle and he dies. Ahaziah's mother, the wicked daughter of Ahab, Athaliah, she realizes now that there's a vacancy on the throne. This is her chance. This is a power-hungry woman. And she wants the throne, even if it means killing off the rightful heirs, which are her sons and her grandsons. That's what she does. She murders everyone with a claim to the throne except a little boy named Joash. Ahaziah's daughter, Jehoshabeth, realizes that her greedy grandma is about to take the throne. She's killing off the heirs. And so this Jehoshabeth, quick thinking, smart, alert, she grabs the baby. And she takes the heir and she hides him in the temple for six years. And Joash is raised for his first six years by the high priest Jehoiada. And chapter 23 records the day when Jehoiada brings out Joash and leads the coup d'etat which unseats Athaliah and restores the throne to the rightful heir, Joash. Joash now is just seven years old. Seven years old and he becomes king. Imagine a second grader on the throne. Mr. Rogers would be the Secretary of State, (laughs) Barney the Attorney General, and Big Bird the head of the Joint Chiefs of Staff. Ice cream and Nintendos for all my subjects. Joash started out so well. He immediately wanted to repair the temple. But he lacked the necessary funds, and so he reinstituted the tithes and offerings that had all been commanded by the law of Moses. He set up an offering box at the temple to collect the offerings. And I love chapter 24, verse 10. It's a wonderful verse. It says, Then all the leaders and all the people rejoiced, brought their contributions, and put them into the chest until all had given. Everyone wanted to give to God. They rejoiced over the opportunity. No one wanted to be left out of giving to God. Years ago, there was an impoverished woman from Paris who put 27 francs in the collection plate for her church's missionaries. The pastor knew that this woman was blind. And so he told her, Madam, you can't afford to give this money. I want to give it back. But she insisted that she could give. After being pressed by her pastor, she finally explained. She said, I asked a friend how much she spent each year for oil to light the lamps in her house so her family could see at night. She told me 27 francs. Since I'm blind, 
and I don't need a lamp. I figure this money is money that I can give to spread the light of God's word into a dark world. What a wonderful story. That's the attitude that refurbished the temple. Everyone saw that giving to God was an opportunity, not an obligation. And everyone pitched in. Everyone wanted to help. Everyone wanted to give what they could. And verse 11 tells us, they gathered money in abundance. They had more than they needed. Now, the kitty king, Joash, he started out well, but he finished sour. You see, when Jehoiada, the priest, was alive, he served the Lord. But when the priest died, so did Joash's devotion to God. King Joash turned to idols. And he conspired to kill the prophet that God sent to warn him. He ended up being wounded in battle and was killed by his own servants on his bed. It was a horrible ending to such a good beginning. We have to continue in our faith. It's not just enough to begin well. We need to finish well. In chapter 25, Joash's son, Amaziah, takes his father's place. And in anticipation of a war with Edom, Amaziah hires 100,000 mercenaries from the northern tribe of Ephraim. A prophet warns him not to put his trust in Israel. He should put his trust in the Lord. But Amaziah has a problem. He says, wait a minute. What about the money that I've paid them. Here is a hindrance to obedience that you and I often face. What about the investment that I've made? What about what I've invested? Think about it. Listen to the man who says, I've got 20 years with this company. And now God wants me to pick up and move and go serve Him in a foreign field? What about my investment? Or the teenage girl who says, I know he's an unbeliever. I know he's taking me down the wrong path. I know it's wrong for me to date him. But we've been going out for three years now. I've got a lot invested in this guy. What about the person who says, I've got an A in this course. And if I stand up for God now, the teacher might get upset. It might jeopardize my grade. I've got a lot invested. Hey, listen to what the prophet says to Amaziah in verse 9. He says, the Lord is able to give you much more than this. Hey, let it go. Count your losses. Just let it go. It doesn't matter. You might lose your investment, but God is always faithful to reimburse your losses plus much, much more. The Lord is able to give you more than this. Jesus told his disciples in Matthew chapter 19, verse 29, And everyone who has left houses or brothers or sisters or father or mother or wife or children or lands for my name's sake, shall receive a hundredfold and inherit eternal life. In other words, God will give them back their investment plus much, much more. It's impossible to really sacrifice for God. Don't say you've made a sacrifice for God. (laughs) 
God will see to it that what you've sacrificed will be returned. Plus plenty of dividends on top of that. Amaziah goes on to perform one of the stupidest stunts in Scripture. You want to know the stupidest thing anybody ever did in the Bible? You watch Amaziah right here. He defeats the Edomites, and then he turns around and worships their gods. And God sends a prophet to him in verse 15, who asks him, Why have you sought the gods of the people which could not rescue their own people from your hand? Amaziah, this is a no-brainer, buddy. And it just makes you wonder what else was going on here. How could anybody be so stupid? I have a hunch, and my hunch is, is that you don't always think straight when you're intoxicated with pride. And we're told here that Amaziah's victory did go to his head. He wins this little battle over the Edomites, and he now thinks he's invincible, and he goes and he threatens the stronger northern neighbor, Israel. The king of Israel warns him in a parable. He says, you're just a little thistle. I'm a cedar tree. And does a little thistle really want to come out and tangle a cedar tree? And the ensuing battle proves that the thistle was no match for the tree, and Judah is trounced. The next king to rule Judah was a man named Uzziah. Usually the big event marking a young man's 16th birthday is the obtaining of his driver's license. But Uzziah took the throne at 16 years old. Imagine a junior in high school on the throne of Israel. Tom Cruise would be Secretary of State. Courtney Cox would be Attorney General. And Mark McGuire would be the head of the Joint Chiefs of Staff. Car stereos for all my subjects. Uzziah reigned 52 years and was a popular king. Chapter 26, verse 5 uncovers the key to Uzziah's success. As long as he sought the Lord, God made him prosper. Isn't that an interesting relationship? Uzziah, though, suffers from the same plague as did his predecessor, Amaziah. His success goes to his head. In chapter 26, verse 16, records his downfall. When he was strong, his heart was lifted up to his destruction. For he transgressed against the Lord his God by entering the temple of the Lord to burn incense on the altar of incense. Now you see, in ancient Israel, there was a strict separation between church and state. The Levitical priests were not to be kings, and the kings from the tribe of Judah were never to be priests. Uzziah, though, overstepped his bounds. He assumed priestly duties, even though he was king, and he entered the temple to offer incense. And when the high priest, Azariah, confronts him, Uzziah becomes furious. He gets angry. What will he do? Well, heads begin to roll. He's the king. But as the priest watch, a little leprous spot breaks out on Uzziah's head. It's God's judgment. And he lives the rest of his days a leper in shame and isolation. And isn't it interesting? Leprosy made him unclean and therefore unfit to ever enter into the temple again. 
You see, Uzziah sought to serve God, but he wanted to make up his own rules. Be careful about that. God doesn't play that game. The next two kings, Jotham and Ahaz, each reigned 16 years over Judah. Jotham was a godly king. His son Ahaz was a snake. Chapter 28 opens with a list of the crimes that Ahaz committed against God. Baal worship, child sacrifice, the proliferation of idols. And verse 19 tells us, For the Lord brought Judah low because of Ahaz, king of Israel, for he had encouraged moral decline in Judah and had been continually unfaithful to the Lord. And Ahaz grew worse the older he got. Verse 24 tells us that he shut the doors of the temple. He erected idolatrous high places throughout Jerusalem, and he worshipped the gods of his enemy, Syria. Chapters 29 through 32 record the reign of Ahaz's son. Apparently, Hezekiah rebelled against his dead and served the Lord. (laughs) And he was one of Judah's best and brightest kings. It's interesting. You parents pay attention. Jotham, a godly king, has a wicked son named Ahaz. The evil Ahaz has a godly son, Hezekiah. The good and godly Hezekiah sires the most ungodly king in all Judah's history, Manasseh. And Manasseh has a grandson named Josiah who becomes a wonderful godly man. (laughs) It just doesn't make sense. Apparently, regardless of a kid's parents, regardless of the training those parents provide, kids still have a mind of their own. And they're still going to make their own choices. And they're still going to decide their own fate. And as much as we'd like to lead our kids and make their choices for them, we can't do it. As parents, we need to raise our kids the best we can and then pray, pray, pray. One factor that aided Hezekiah was the influence of his friend Isaiah. And in chapter 32, verse 20, Assyria invades Judah, camps against Jerusalem. But it's Isaiah who encourages Hezekiah to trust the Lord. Together, the two men pray. And the Lord sends an angel in the middle of the night who slays the Assyrian army and sends Sennacherib, the king of Assyria, back to his own land in shame. Hezekiah's reign includes many wonderful accomplishments. He cleanses the temple. He reopens it for worship. He reinstitutes the celebration of the Passover. In fact, Hezekiah sends out runners and messengers throughout both Israel and Judah to call the nation to repentance. Chapter 30, verse 10 and 11 records the outcome. The runners passed from city to city through the country of Ephraim and Manasseh as far as Zebulun. But they laughed at them and mocked them. Nevertheless, some from Asher, Manasseh, and Zebulun humbled themselves and came to Jerusalem. You see, this is what happens whenever we take the gospel to our friends and to our neighbors. Some will laugh and mock, but others will humble themselves and they will come to God. Hezekiah taught the people God's word. He prayed for the nation's healing. He tore down the idols in the high places around Judah, even in parts of Israel. 
He rallied the priesthood and he reinstituted the tithes and offerings. Hezekiah had a heart for God. But even Hezekiah backslid in his later years. Chapter 32, verse 24, recounts a bout with an illness that was brought on by a bout of pride. Second Kings chapter 20 tells us that Hezekiah was about to die from this illness when he prayed. And he asked God to heal him, and God mercifully extended his life 15 years. Hezekiah was also guilty of a lapse of judgment. When his life was extended, God gave him a sign to ensure his promise. The shadow of the sundial regressed 10 degrees. We read about this back in 2 Kings. It was an, astro- astro- it was an astronomical phenomenon that was noted by the astrologers in Babylon. And these Babylonians, they dispatch a delegation to research the cause of what they had seen in the sky. And when they arrive in Jerusalem, Hezekiah, because of his pride, wants to show them all of his treasure, all of his riches. And so he gives them the royal tour. And it's like showing a pit bull the meat locker. Later, when the Babylonians plunder the nations, they remember Judah's treasure. And they come and they steal the treasures and riches of Hezekiah. The reign of Judah's most wicked king is recorded in chapter 33. Manasseh was awful. Ooh, Manasseh. You don't even like to say his name. Manasseh. It's like Saddam Hussein. Adolf Hitler, Manasseh, same kind of thing. You know. Charles Manson, Manasseh. New York Yankees, Manasseh. <laughs> I'll stop there. Verse 9 of chapter 33, the first nine verses of chapter 33 enumerate all of this man's sins. He was into idols, pornography, astrology, the occult, child sacrifice. Telling you, you don't want him as a neighbor. And verse 9 sums it up. He seduced Judah. He seduced her. He had evil intentions. Eventually, he was taken prisoner to Babylon. The other night I was at the store, and I was kind of walking around, strolling the aisles, And I noticed this guy who had a nose ring in his nose. Just kind of a big old nose ring. And I almost asked him, Man, how do you pick your nose wearing one of those things? (laughs) I didn't. But it did get me thinking about Manasseh. Because when he was arrested... His enemies put a hook in his nose, chains on his wrists, took him prisoner, and led him back to Babylon. Whenever you see one of those nose rings, now you'll think of Manasseh. But an amazing thing happens in chapter 33, verse 12. Now, when he was in affliction, he implored the Lord his God, and humbled himself greatly before the God of his fathers and prayed to him. And he received his entreaty 
heard his supplication and brought him back to Jerusalem into his kingdom. And then Manasseh knew that the Lord was God. Case closed. If God can forgive and restore a man like Manasseh after all the wickedness that he had done, then God's grace can forgive and restore anyone in this room tonight or anyone who hears this message. Ezra knew the example of Manasseh would be a great encouragement to the post-exile Jews who were also returning to Judah after their imprisonment in Babylon. If God could forgive a Manasseh, God can forgive anyone. After Manasseh dies, his son Amon rules for two years before he's assassinated. And with Amon dead, the throne is inherited by his eight-year-old son, Josiah. And we're told in chapter 34, verse 2, that Josiah did what was right in the sight of the Lord. And here's the verse I want you to read, especially you high school kids back in the back. Check it out. Verse 3, chapter 34, verse 3. It says, for in the eighth year of his reign, while he was still young, he began to seek the God of his father, David. Notice that phrase. While he was still young, he began to seek the Lord. Now, his eighth year would make him 16 years old. So when a lot of young males are bucking authority and sowing wild oats, Josiah decides it's time to begin to seek the Lord. Reminds me of the evangelist who came home from a crusade when his wife asked him how it went. He said, oh, it went great. We had two and a half, two and a half lives saved tonight. She remarked, that's great. You had two adults and one child? He corrected her, no. We had two children and one adult. The kids have a whole lifetime to live for God. The adults have already wasted half their life. Young people, don't throw away your best years. Why waste half of this short life on empty, temporal, selfish pursuits while you're still young? Begin to seek the Lord. Begin to serve the Lord. Invest a whole lifetime in pursuit of God. Not only will you have longer to chalk up eternal rewards, But that decision will also save you many, many scars along the way. Be a Josiah and start serving the Lord while you're still young. The turning point in Josiah's life came during the temple renovations. After 55 years with Manasseh on the throne, (laughs) the place needed to get cleaned up. And while the priests were making repairs on the temple, they found a copy of the Law of Moses. When Josiah read God's word, he was humbled. He was broken. For the first time, he realized how far the people had fallen from the standards of God. And Josiah repented. He took action. He too sent elders throughout the land to read the law to the people. He made a covenant on behalf of the nation. And he promised God their obedience. And in chapter 35, he reinstitutes the Passover. Josiah also returns the ark to the temple. Apparently, during the desecrations of the temple, uh, the desecrations orchestrated by Manasseh, the priests had taken the ark out of the temple for protection. And chapter 35, verse 3, seems to imply that the Levites 
had held the ark up on poles and had never set it down outside the temple. Now, isn't that interesting? Imagine for 50 years, the Levites serving shifts, holding up the ark. Isn't that interesting? Josiah's death marks the beginning of the end for the nation Judah. Understand, at the time, the world is headed for a showdown. On the global scene, the Babylonians are threatening the Assyrian Empire. The Egyptians come north to the city of Carchemish, where they're going to join together and fight with Assyria. Josiah, though, he sides with Babylon. And he tries to confront the Egyptians on behalf of his Babylonian friends as they pass through Judah. Jeremiah told him not to. He did it anyway, and it cost him his life. God was working out his purposes among the nations. And Josiah unnecessarily died because he stuck his nose where it didn't belong. And I think there's a lesson there for us. Be careful where your nose goes. Chapter 36 records the final days of Judah before their deportation to Babylon. After Babylon's victory at Carchemish, they marched south. And they attacked Judah on three occasions. And each time they deport a group of Jews to Babylon. The first deportation occurs in 605 B.C. The Babylonian prince Nebuchadnezzar invades Jerusalem. And in verse 6 of the last chapter... We're told that King Jehoiakim was bound in fetters to be carried to Babylon. History tells us, though, that Nebuchadnezzar never never carried out his plan. You see, he receives word that his father, Nabopolassar, has died. And so he sets Jehoiakim free, and he rushes back to Babylon to solidify his claim to the throne. Nebuchadnezzar did, though, take captive certain members of Judah's royal court and brought them back to Babylon, and you'll recognize their names, Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Nebuchadnezzar also stole the temple treasures that Hezekiah had displayed earlier. The Babylonians had remembered those treasures and took them back with them. Eight years later, After Jehoiakim dies, his son Jehoiakim takes over in his father's place. He reigns just 100 days. Now, King Nebuchadnezzar invades again. And this time he takes Jehoiakim to Babylon along with a priest by the name of Ezekiel who ministers to the exiles there in Babylon. Before he leaves, though, Nebuchadnezzar puts another of Josiah's sons on the throne, Zedekiah rules as a vassal of the Babylonians for 11 years. Despite the warnings of Jeremiah, the prophet, Zedekiah allies himself with the Egyptians, and he rebels against Babylon. And it's the straw that breaks the camel's back. King Nebuchadnezzar says, enough is enough. And in 586 B.C., the Babylonians sacked Jerusalem. The wall is breached. The city is pounded into submission. The temple is burned to the ground and the Jews are deported and the Babylonians show no mercy. 
For 70 years, the Jews live in exile in Babylon. And the question comes up, why 70 years? Well, you see, we're told here, the law commanded the Jews to let the land lie dormant every seven years. It was God's way of allowing the land to rejuvenate, the nutrients to replenish. But because of their greed and their unbelief, their failure to trust God to make that sixth year abundant enough to last over until the beginning of the next, because of their greed, they ignored the law. And they ignored this law for 490 years, which is 77th years. And in essence, what God did is He said, okay, if you won't give me my 70 years to let the land lie dormant, I'll get them another way. I'll take you out of the land, take you back to Babylon, and I'll let this land rest the 70 years that you've deprived it. And that's why they were in Babylon for 70 years. Ezra closes Second Chronicles by mentioning the event that ends the 70-year exile. In 536 B.C., the Babylonians are conquered by the Medes and Persians. And Second Chronicles closes with one of the first proclamations made by the Persian king Cyrus. He allows all of the deported peoples, including the Jews, to return to their homeland. He allows the Jews to return to Jerusalem and rebuild their temple, and that proclamation is included in the last verses. The book is over. Ezra has accomplished his purpose. He has recalled Judah's glorious past to stir up hope for a glorious future. God made Judah great before. He can make her great again. And Ezra instills hope in these returned people. You see, the key for Judah, then and now, the key for us, in fact, is to put our trust in God. Trust in the Lord, and you'll prevail. Trust in your own strength, no matter how strong you are, and you'll fail. The choice is yours. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for this uh, wonderful chronicle of the history of Judah and the lessons it's taught us. Bless us tonight as we go home and this week as we seek to shine your light to this needy world. We love you, Lord. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. And everyone said, you're dismissed.